Welcome to Equipping the Body. I'm Dr. Brad Starnes, and today we're continuing through the book of 1 Peter, and we find ourselves starting chapter number 2 of this wonderful epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to deal with the first three verses and try to draw uh, all we can from them. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and I'll remind you that the chapter and verse numbers are not inspired, okay? Those were added much later. So, really, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 should be seen in direct relation uh, to what comes before, where he talks about how you've been born again by the uh, Word of God, how that you've purified your souls in, in obeying the truth. Um, this is Then he ends with, now this is the word which the gospel by the gospel is preached to you. So this idea of someone being born again. And then he begins chapter 2 with the word therefore. Now we know therefore is a connecting word. It's a conjunction. It connects A, therefore, B. I don't know, man. An example, um, I was hungry, therefore I ate. Okay, I'm connecting the two ideas because they are connected. And therefore is the word that connects them. So that being said, he's talking about being a believer course he also talks about the fact that the word of god is never fades away and all those things but the the overarching thing is that this person's been born again he says therefore okay therefore what well because you've been born again okay therefore laying aside all malice all deceit hypocrisy envy and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If, that's a conditional word, you have indeed tasted that the Lord is gracious. I want to speak to you a moment, uh, drawing from this passage on the idea of the consequences of conversion. The consequences of conversion. I've been reminding uh, our people at Cedar Shoals for the past several weeks that we've been in First Peter that Peter is not writing to those who simply profess faith, but rather those who genuinely possess faith. These are true believers. This um, really and truly, this message has nothing to do with a lost person. This is written to those who believe themselves uh, to be saved, to be in Christ. And so he's saying, well, when you become a Christian, these are the consequences of conversion. Now, when I say consequences, I don't mean it in the negative sense. You know, we always think of the word consequence in a negative light. You know, we'd say that, well, there's consequences to your actions. You know, I teach my kids that. Normally, it's when I'm uh, punishing them because they lied or did something, threw something, made a mess after they were told to put something up, you know, whatever it is that uh, five-year-olds and four-year-olds normally get in trouble for. Um, and so I teach about consequence. But in this sense, we're, we're speaking of a consequence as simply something that happens because of A or because of B. So because you're born again, the consequence of that is described. What happens because of conversion? Well, the big idea is that you change, okay? If you wanted to sum this message up in one sentence, the consequence of conversion is change. Now, there's another verse in the Bible 
by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. So, in a sense, this is exactly what Peter is saying, is what Paul said in a different way uh, in another place. But that serves to show biblical theology how all of the Bible is in agreement with the rest of the Bible. As I've said many times, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So the big idea is the consequence of conversion has changed. But drawing strictly from the text, we see that in two parts. So what are the two consequences of conversion? Well, first of all, in verse 11, we see the first consequence of conversion is the disregarding of sinful desires. The disregarding of sinful desires. And then in verse number 12, we see the second consequence of conversion is the development of spiritual desires. So when somebody gets saved, if they're truly saved, there will be a disregarding of sinful desires and a development of spiritual desires. Ergo, to replace those sinful desires. That's that's this text in a nutshell. So, the first consequence of conversion, verse 11, is the disregarding of sinful desires. He says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. You know, unfortunately, in our day, we live in a day where very few know what it truly means to be a Christian. Many believe that being a Christian means that they believe in God. Well, the demons believe in God. Okay. Uh, or they believe, well, I believe in God and I attend church irregularly. Used to be we would say, well, you know, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian, but you can't even use that cliche anymore because even most of the people who claim to be Christians don't go to church anymore. I mean, we're truly living in a in a desolate time. Or because they got baptized, or because they try to be a good person. So, well, you know, I believe in God, and I try to do what's right, and I even go to church sometimes, and, man, I even believe all that Jesus stuff. But all of these are outward reflections um, that is not the heart of conversion. Conversion is an inward, now it will reflect outwardly, but at the same time, those things are not what it means to be saved. Salvation is not tied to our works, it's tied to the excuse me, salvation is not because of our works, I should say. It's because of the work of Christ. So, to become a Christian means that you've repented of your sins and you've been born again by the Holy Spirit. And this will lead, or you could say the consequence, is a changed life. A changed life. The problem is, what I've been trying to describe, is we have so many people today that claim to be converted without consequences. Uh, there's not enough evidence to convict them of being a Christian. Because there is no disregarding for the sinful desires, uh, what we see, sadly, is the opposite. We see the uh, excusing of the sinful desires. But that's, that's not the heart 
that belongs to Christ. Because watch this. Peter says when a person becomes a Christian, they lay aside sinful desires. Their inward desires will dramatically change in an observable way. These are the sinful desires, and they display an unconverted heart. It begins with malice. Now, what is malice? Uh, coming from the Greek word kakia, and it means general wickedness, not malice in the sense that we use uh, in English a lot, like ill will towards somebody. But here, this word in, in Greek just means general wickedness, just, just badness for the sake of badness, just sin in a very general and broad sense. It says lay aside it. All deceit, we know what deceit is. That's that's the uh, being deceitful to operate in a manner that's untruthful or that lacks integrity. To deceive, to to lie, to operate in lying, um, to attempt to deceive others about any given thing or subject is just to be deceitful. To be a deceiving person and this shouldn't be the case for a christian because if you know the truth and you've heard the truth and you claim to believe the believe the truth then you should only speak the truth if you know the truth you've heard the truth you claim to believe the truth and of course we know the truth is jesus christ then you should only speak truth. That's what you're born of once you've been born again. Now, we're not talking about sinless perfectionism. okay? That, and I don't think that's what Peter has at, at play either. What he's saying is, though, your, your natural bend, uh, we see this testimony throughout Scripture, your natural desires should change. Should change. Laying aside the sinful desires, not only deceit, but then he mentions Envy and hypocrisy, being hypocritical. Again, these come to the idea of the truth. And then being envious, to desire that which we didn't work for, that does not belong to us. These are self-explanatory, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. You should be truthful. That pretty much covers hypocrisy and deceit. You shouldn't pretend to be something you're not in order to oppress anybody because truly the only person's opinion of you that matters and spiritual matters in the, at the end of the day is Christ. And we know that hypocrisy comes from a word that described actors in this day. They'd wear the mask, and it means to wear a mask. I mean, again, the, these things are self-explanatory, so especially in a podcast form, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and unpack these because they pretty much speak for themselves envy but this last one is very interesting and all evil speaking now if you just read that right off the rip you know evil speaking well well, that must mean cussing i mean that was the first thing that came to my mind i'll be honest with you well you're not supposed to cuss but that's not what he's talking about the word behind this phrase evil speaking in the greek it implies disparaging gossip, backbiting, defamation. To speak ill of someone 
with the intention of changing the view of someone else of that person. In other words, and I'll just give you an example and make this up. If I talked to Bob and I spoke poorly of Steve, it's because I have a desire and agenda for Bob to have a negative view of Steve. So it's like gossip, but on steroids. It, it, it's defamation. It's gossip with the intention of harm to that person's image. Evil speaking. This is so true in the political arena on both sides of the aisle, but this such talk has no place in the church, we're told to build each other up with our words, to comfort each other with our words, as Paul told the Thessalonians, wherefore comfort one another with these words when you speak about the rapture. We're we're called to encourage, to rebuke, yes, but to exhort and et cetera, et cetera. We're not called to use our words to tear people down in a gossiping way. Um so our speech should be truthful and with good intentions toward those within the body of Christ. So in a sense, a lot of what uh, shows the evidence or the consequence of conversion is how you treat other believers and how you interact with the body of Christ. Um, I had a pastor friend who said this. We were preaching at a funeral one time. and He said, if you love Christ, you'll love his bride. And uh, there's some of that in play in Peter's language here. But again, I want to speak of laying aside this idea to lay them aside, to disregard the sinful desires as we tried to make this alliterated. The word translated lay aside was used in this day to describe the act of putting off dirty or soiled garments. And so there was a tradition going all the way back uh, to the ancient church where when they would baptize somebody, they would wear their dirty clothes and they would come to be baptized, and they would put off those old clothes, and after the baptism, they would put on the new clothes. Because we know baptism doesn't save you, but it's a picture, it's a testimony of an inward uh, action, an inward event of being saved, and you put off the old man and put on the new. And laying aside, that, that word is the same word used to describe the changing of garments. And so... If, you, if your desires have changed, if you feel a disregarding of sinful desires, I didn't say if you're perfect, because none of us are perfect. The only perfect person is Jesus Christ, because he was fully man and fully God, but 0% sin. But what I am saying is that your desires should change, your appetite should change. You should lay these things aside and just the idea that he's saying that you should do them mean that if you are saved, you, you have the ability to lay them aside. Whereas if you're not, you don't. The second, the second consequence of becoming a Christian or converting is the development of spiritual desires. Look at verse number 12. Oh, excuse me, verse number 2. I don't know why I said verse 11 earlier. Verse 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. 
Now, if sinful desires are disregarded, then what desires are developed in their place? Well, Peter answers that. Spiritual desires, namely the desire for the Word of God. Now, he uses the analogy here of a newborn baby, and this is very interesting because the word used here is not describing a child like what's used elsewhere in the New Testament, but a infant. I mean, a, 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 a nursing infant fresh out of the delivery room, literally minutes old is the idea he's getting at. And what does an infant desire? It's mother's milk. That's as natural as the sky being blue. We know that babies are cute and cuddly, but when they're hungry, they become horrendous. How do you know that? Because I have two children. They pitch a fit. I mean, all it is their one obsession is the milk from their mother, the substance from which they live and grow. That same level of desire, Peter says, should be developing in the heart of a converted man, woman, boy, or girl. I've seen it as a pastor. I've seen people who claim to be Christians. They could care less about the things of God, the Word of God. They have no, man, do not ask them to come to Sunday school. Do not expect them to come more than once a week to church if they come that much. I've never seen them carry a Bible. There's, there's no outside the church, there's no desire to learn more about Christ. I mean, they just, they just absolutely could care less. As a pastor, you worry about people like that because there's no fruit. But I've seen the opposite, too. I've met people. Man, every time I see them, they're, they're Pastor, I got this Bible. They're, they're, what does this mean? You know, they're, they're signing up for a new Sunday school class. They're there every time they can be with a Bible open, taking notes, Coming up to me after and before the service during the week, calling me with Bible question, there's a genuine desire in their heart for the pure milk of the word. You could even say that it's an obsession. Man, I celebrate that because that's a consequence of conversion. That's evidence that that person truly knows Jesus Christ because they have a burning and growing desire for his word to know more about him. Now, isn't it ironic, not ironic, that's not the word, isn't it appropriate that he uses a baby because he says you desire the milk to grow thereby. How does a baby grow? They eat. And so this desire should be growing in you and through you and growing you in and of itself. And that's the same way the Word of God works in the heart of a believer. That They desire nourishment because it's in their nature to desire nourishment. And they don't find it in sinful desires anymore, but rather on the opposite, on the contrary, they find it in the spiritual desire for the Word of God. They're, ladies and gentlemen, their very DNA has changed, if you will. 
they've changed on the most core level. So the consequence of conversion is change. How so? How so? Well, by the disregarding of sinful desires and by the development of spiritual desires, namely the Word of God. Finally, we come to the criteria of conversion. He says, this and this, if this. So think about that. A disregarding of sinful desires, a development of spiritual desires, if. Boy, that word if is a little scary, isn't it? It's conditional. Look at verse 3, the criteria. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, therefore, if somebody has tasted the graciousness of the Lord, they will disregard sinful desires and develop spiritual desires in their place. That's part of the evidence that they have indeed tasted. Because I'm going to tell you something. Once you taste the grace of God, it's going to change your life. And if your life has not been changed, you know nothing of the grace of God because it's far too powerful to not change. If, if, do you see A, do you see B? Well, if you do, then you know. But if, boy, that's just, that word, when I was studying this and preparing this, that just, if, if, if. In conclusion, the two consequences of conversion are the disregarding for sinful desires and the development of spiritual desires. If you see these consequences, then you've tasted of the grace of God, if you have. question is, have you tasted of the grace of God? have you should see these consequences if you have not it's apparent grace changes case in point the song amazing grace was written by the slave trader john newton who was an evil man who purported slavery and got rich off the slave market but he converted to Christianity he was saved and because of that he not only abandoned slavery but he became an abolitionist that's somebody that works to see slavery abolished and isn't it funny isn't it such a coincidence that this change to him was best described in view of God's amazing grace? How much did he change? Well, he once was blind, but now he sees. And so the consequence of conversion is change, how so, in the disregarding of sinful desires and in the development of spiritual desires. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 
keep studying the book of First Peter. I hope this has been a blessing to you. And until next time, may God bless you.